It's 39, 39, 39 degrees. Temperatures falling, soon I'm the wind's gonna freeze. Winds blowing too damn strong. Branches falling. Temperature falling soon, it's gonna freeze. Wind blowing so strong, gonna be a problem all night long. Now I gotta try to fight the breeze. Dodge these damn branches falling from the trees. But I'm gonna make it. Combo. Combo. Thank you. 
using your genes to do this. Well, traditionally, it was too difficult to do this because not many people have had their gene sequence. But now, it's almost a fad to have your gene sequence. So at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, they analyzed the genomes of half a million people. Half a million people. And then they compared it with the lifespan of their parents. And then they got a correlation between genes and habits and lifespan. Of course, this is not deterministic. You can't accurately predict people, one individual's lifespan. But on average, average, you can in fact make certain conclusions from this. They singled out several genes which seem to indicate a high correlation with longevity. And by plotting this, they then calculated that the top 10% of people with healthy genes lived on average five years longer than people at the bottom 10%. Now, we should also point out that they looked at the genes. This means they did not look at smoking, bad habits, being overweight, not exercising. And they, of course, will also affect your ultimate life expectancy. But what they did was to look at the genes to find out, is there something you inherited from your parents that could then predict longevity? Well, the results are still being crunched. However, we'll announce the results when they come out. We should also point out that in the future, this may allow scientists to one day find the fountain of youth. Now, let me explain. Now that millions of people are having their genes sequenced, it means that one day scientists will take the genes of old people, scan them, and also the genes of young people, scan them, and subtract and find out where most of the wear and tear and most of the aging takes place in the human genome. For example, take a car. Where does aging take place in a car? Well, it takes place in the engine. Why? That's where you have moving parts. That's where you have combustion, the buildup of deposits, oxidation. And that's where much of the aging is concentrated. Now, what is the engine of the cell? The engine of the cell is the mitochondria. That's where energy is burnt. That's where the, the cell burns glucose to get energy to perform bodily functions. Now this means that by looking at the genes of mitochondria, we expect to find errors, error buildup, because of the wear and tear and the combustion that takes place in the mitochondria. And bingo, that's exactly what we do find. We do find that damage damage to the genes seems to be concentrated in a few areas, including the mitochondria, and that leads us to believe that one day we'll be able to fix those genes. Because, well, what is aging? Of course, there are many theories of aging over the centuries, but scientists are more or less converging on the idea that aging is the buildup of errors, errors in our genes, mistakes in our cells, mistakes in our molecules. The buildup, the buildup of all these mistakes eventually make the cells sluggish. They don't perform like they used to. And as a consequence of this, uh, aging takes place and eventually you die. In fact, that's why we die. Now, if you can reverse the process using gene therapy to fix those broken genes, then perhaps the cell can be rejuvenated 
and perhaps we'll have a fountain of youth. Of course, what that's if we just a dream. Are? But it's a dream that is based on what is known about science at the present time. What if we are robots trying aging, to repair you know, ourselves? Like we are self-repairing right robots. Our eyes. Look at the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. Most people think that they are a permanent feature of the planet Earth, but no, they move. The North Pole and the South Pole actually migrate, and the migration factor is accelerating. Scientists were a little bit surprised to find that the North Pole, the magnetic North Pole in Canada, is moving faster than expected. It used to move about nine miles per year. And so in other words, if you have a map of the Earth, you have, of course, the geologic North Pole around which the Earth spins, but then you have the magnetic North Pole where compass needles points, and that's located in northern Canada. But it moves about nine miles per year. The latest evidence is that it moves 34 miles per year, much faster than expected, and we don't know why. First of all, it does affect map makers because the military and commercial shipping do in fact use not only GPS, but also the magnetic north, and we have to recalibrate. We have to cal recalibrate the actual location of magnetic north. Now, why is it moving? It has something to do with the inside of the Earth, but sadly, we scientists are clueless as to being able to predict and understand the motion of the North Poles. Now, the North Pole and the South Pole sometimes even flips. We know this by going to Hawaii, digging right into the lava flows, and over the millennia, when lava cools down and freezes, it freezes the direction of magnetic north in the lava. And so by simply getting a compass needle and analyzing the direction of the North Pole frozen in the lava, you can actually see as you go millions of years into the past, the fact that the poles have in fact moved. Well, they're moving again. In fact, they're decreasing in intensity. That's right, the strength of the North Pole is decreasing in intensity and one day may go down to zero. At that point, things get a little bit dangerous because the solar wind can thereby affect the Earth and bathe the Earth in high intensity radiation. However, this has happened in the past. We came through it, perhaps it accelerated our mutation rate to have so much ultraviolet radiation from the sun, but we lived through it, and if it happens again, well, we'll have to get protection. Uh, more than just sunglasses. And lastly, let me say a few things about my field, which is high-energy physics. It turns out that the Europeans want to build a replacement for the Large Hadron Collider. As you know, the Large Hadron Collider is this gigantic machine, 100 kilometers in circumference, built outside Geneva, Switzerland. It's an atom smasher that's even bigger than the previous one. In fact, the new one is going to be about four times bigger, perhaps have an energy of 10 times the energy of the Large Hadron Collider. And of course, this is not cheap. We're talking about perhaps $27 billion for the machine. Now, of course, it's not guaranteed that the European Union is going to cough up that amount of money, but scientists are beginning to look what is called beyond the standard model. The standard model is a very ugly theory of the atom. However, it is the most advanced understanding of the universe. 
The standard model is what is called the theory of almost everything. We see no deviation from the standard model except it misses gravity. That's right, the other great theory of science, Einstein's theory of gravity, is not included in the discussion of the standard model. However, there is a theory called string theory, which is what I do for a living. That's my day job, working on string theory. And it predicts a new set of particles beyond the Large Hadron Collider. And that's where the future circular collider comes in, the FCC. The FCC would be perhaps a replacement for the Large Hadron Collider. It will perhaps discover dark matter in the laboratory. We now realize that dark matter makes up most of the universe. Most of the universe is not made out of atoms. Most of the universe is made out of this elusive dark matter. And the FCC, the Future Circular Collider, which will be 50 to 62 miles long, may in fact have enough energy to discover this missing piece. And it is a piece that is predicted by string theory. String theory predicts that all matter consists of tiny vibrating strings. The next octave of the string, we think, could be dark matter. And that, of course, could open up a whole new era in physics with the discovery of a new form of matter, stable matter, matter beyond atomic physics. And that is dark matter, which we hope to create with the Large Hadron Collider. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of what happens when the soft pole begins to melt and break up. Our special guest is David Archer, and the book is called The Long Thaw. In other words, what happens if one day the poles begin to melt because of global warming? And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Alright, this Stay is... Stay tuned. This is a dude I listen to, Michio Kaku. announces own name. These dudes are smart cat like Neil deGrasse and the Tyson. They're colleagues. to hear me play some music. Uh, number five. There it is. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we gave you the dark news about the fact that the soft pole is heating up six times faster than previously thought, and the temperature of the oceans is rising. Sea levels are going to be rising and accelerating into the future because of global warming. Well, with us today to talk to a climatologist about this is David Archer, author of the book The Long Thaw, 
and he'll walk us through what's going to happen if one day the North and the South Pole begins to melt and all sorts of havoc takes place in the atmosphere of the Earth. And so once again, we're not talking about something that's going to happen tomorrow. These are long-term changes, but satellites and airplane photographs and measurements indicate that, well, all arrows point up. The fact that temperatures are rising, the fact that the melting of the Antarctic is accelerating, the fact that weather changes are going to be increasing as we go into the future. And just remember that the oceans control most of the weather on the planet Earth. So as the weathers of the pole begin to change, your weather can change as well. For example, think of the polar vortex. The polar vortex is this hurricane on top of the North Pole and it's beginning to wander. It's not so stable anymore, this hurricane at the very top of the North Pole. And it begins to affect the jet stream. And when the jet stream is affected, wow, watch out. That's when you get snowstorms. That's when you get droughts. That's when you get the whole weather of the United States being affected when the jet stream starts to wobble out of control. And so once again, a special guest in the second half of Exploration with David Roger. The topic is the long thaw. 5.30 in the morning, wearing gray and dark blue. That's why I need to be selling lights. People like that. To the people that care about them. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. He's Professor David Archer, Professor of Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago, and he's the author of a rather disturbing new book, and it's called The Long Thaw, How Humans Are Changing the Next 100,000 Years of Earth's Climate. He argues in The Long Thaw that not only are humans ruining the atmosphere of the Earth by dumping copious quantities of carbon dioxide, but the effects of this will linger in the atmosphere, not just for years, not just for centuries, but a hundred thousand years. And what does it mean? What does it mean for us to live in a world with that much carbon dioxide and that much global warming? So once again, the special guest is Dr. David Archer of the University of Chicago. The book is called The Long Thought. Professor Archer, as a youth, when did you first get interested in science, and in particular, Earth science? I guess I looked to the, the, the Earth, the functioning of the Earth, the, the stable geochemical cycles of, of things like that, uh, uh, as something that's bigger than, than people are. Uh, I, I, I looked to the natural world as a sort of reference. I think that's what brought me to the natural science. Why I chose to study the oceans, actually, instead of forests or other planets or stars or something like that, uh, is because I've always had a romantic love of boats. Uh, but then I ended up living in Chicago anyway, but that's just one of, one of life's jokes, I guess. Okay, well, let's get right into it. First of all, what is the relationship between carbon dioxide uh, and global warming? Carbon dioxide uh, attracts infrared light 
that tries to leave the atmosphere. It's like if you put uh, a coat on in the wintertime, it, it traps some of the heat leaving your body, and so it allows your body to, to, to warm up. But the theory about CO2, how it affects the climate of the Earth, and how much it affects the climate of the Earth, is over 100 years old now. It's very, very solid science. But if there were no greenhouse effect, we wouldn't be able to explain why the Earth isn't in a deep freeze, or the climate of Venus, or or lots of other things. It's very solid science. And well, talking about Venus, some people call Venus the greenhouse planet. Uh, why would a carbon dioxide atmosphere for Venus make it the greenhouse planet? Well, there's 70 atmospheres of CO2 in the, 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 the atmosphere of, of Venus, so it's very, very thick greenhouse uh, I don't have one. It uh, has a very strong greenhouse effect. Actually, uh, Venus is also a very reflective planet. That's why it's so bright in the night sky. So if there were no greenhouse effects on either Earth or Mars, even though Venus is closer to the sun, it would be colder than the Earth because it, 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 it reflects away so much of the, the sunlight. Not human activity. And other people say that the Earth is cooling. Uh, what are your thoughts? Sometimes it's even the same people who one year say the Earth is not warming up and the next year say that it's warming up, but it's entirely natural. You know, ours is a contentious species. We tend to take both sides of positions, even if there's nothing to, uh, to base assertions on. If they sound good, they still can carry some weight. The Earth has clearly been getting warmer. Uh, that's measured, even though it's been a cool summer here in Chicago. Overall, the average temperature of the Earth is rising. Uh, the sun has not been getting brighter. We have uh, good measurements of the intensity of the sun from satellites going back a decade, a few decades. I don't know exactly, but it's not. There, there's a sunspot cycle that, that makes the sun brighter and cooler over 11 years, but there isn't a long-term trend at all in the sun getting brighter. So, you know, people say what they you know, think people want to hear, and they think people hear what they want to hear, but there is, you know, objective reality. We can measure these things and, and, and say what's really going on. Okay, well, some of the critics say, okay, okay, so maybe, maybe the Earth is getting warmer. However, human activity, some people would say, no, no, it's not human activity. So what's the reason that many scientists believe that is human activity causing the current warming? We can estimate how much warming to expect from rising CO2 concentrations in the air. That's actually uh, boiled down into a number called the climate sensitivity, which is how much the climate would warm if you doubled the CO2 concentration. And the first estimate of the climate sensitivity of the Earth actually goes back to uh, Sponte Arrhenius in the year 1896, over 100 years ago, uh, who predicted that doubling CO2 should raise the temperature of the Earth by about 6 degrees centigrade. And now they say it's something like 2.5 to 5 degrees centigrade. It's really not that much of a change. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tricky calculation because it's very complex the way the CO2 interacts with light. But, but it, this is by sort of normal, non-political rules of science, this is a done question. So if you, let's say, were to remove humanity from the planet Earth, then you're saying that the Earth would not be so warm as it is today? 
there was a model uh, exercise conducted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So these are climate models developed all over the world. And they all subjected their models to uh, one set of, one scenario where you tell the models about the rising concentrations of greenhouse gases, and then another scenario where you only have the natural climate forcings, like the intensity of the sun or uh, volcanic eruptions can cool down the planet. And uh, if you tell the models about the greenhouse gases, they can explain the warming that has been detected since uh, sort of the 1970s. The warming, the temperature since the 1970s, that's the smoking gun for global warming. If you don't tell the models about the, uh, the, the greenhouse gases, they, they, don't, they don't warm up in the same way. So if you want to say that the warming is, is real, but it's caused by, you know, something that we don't understand in the climate system, which, you know, there will always be things that we don't understand, uh, not only would you like to come up with an explanation of what that something would be in order to settle the question, but you would also have to figure out why the CO2 is not causing the warming that we attribute it to. But, uh, it's sort of like if you catch, uh, I make an analogy in my classes uh, to a murder mystery, because people always put on their thinking caps when they're reading murder mysteries. They don't always put on thinking caps when they're thinking about science. But So you catch the butler with the gun in his hand and the dead guy, and there's you know smoke coming out of the the gun, and your partner is sort of a contrarian guy. You're 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 a policeman trying to to you know solve the crime. Your partner says, well, I think the chauffeur did it. But you know, for your partner to convict the chauffeur, he's first going to have to explain to the jury what the butler was doing with the, the smoking gun in his hand. In other words, translating back out of the analogy, if we want to say that the warming is not from CO2, we have to explain what's wrong with greenhouse theory that that uh, the CO2 should not be causing the warming. Well, if you look at temperature rises over the last many centuries, you see a gradual warming, because after all, there was an ice age 10,000 years ago. But some scientists say that there's a spike, a spike that is quite anomalous, that is taking place in the last 100 years, and that's proof that it's human activity, because it's not part of the natural cycle. What are your thoughts? Well, there is this large-scale glacial interglacial cycle that you refer to. There's also uh, a sort of a milder, much shorter, I don't know if it's a cycle or, or just sort of fluctuation, but uh, back sort of between the 1300s and the 1700s was a time of generally cool temperatures called the Little Ice Age. So you could, you know, ice skates in Amsterdam and, and, and things like that that you no longer can do. And that uh, is correlated with um, uh, a dearth, a lack of sunspots, which indicates that the sun was cooler. We don't have satellite solar intensity data going back to the 1600s, but we have observations of a number of sunspots that date back to, you know, Galileo's invention of, to the, invention of the telescope in the 1600s. And uh, there's a correlation between the number of sunspots and those sorts of uh, climate changes. I think the climate... The evolution of climate up until the 70s, though, can be explained pretty well uh, by, by natural forcing. It, it isn't until, until the 70s that the, the climate signal started to, the human-forced climate signal started to come up out of the noise of natural variability. Now, also, some people say that the last decade uh, was perhaps the hottest decade ever recorded. How far back does that go? Because, of course,
course, perhaps during the dinosaur era, uh, things were a lot warmer back then. Sure, sure. So there are thermometer records that go back to about 1860, from Fahrenheit's invention of the thermometer. Uh, they can piece together uh, the temperature of the Earth going back further than that with what they call proxy records of, of, of temperature uh, from the widths of tree rings or from chemical measurements they can make in, in ice cores or sediment cores or something like that. And so they can record, they can, they can figure out that the Little Ice Age was cooler and then there was a period of general warmth before that called the medieval optimum climate. Those records generally go back uh, a thousand or two thousand years, and the conclusion of the last uh, IPCC report, which summarized climate, you know, for non-specialists and for, you know, for the, the community outside of your own field, very useful, very, very authoritative reports. Uh, they concluded that current temperatures are warmer than they have been in 1,300 years. But if you go back millions of years, you're absolutely right. The, uh, during uh, peaking about 50 million years ago, the Earth was, was it felt tropical to the poles, and there was no ice anywhere to be found. And this is uh, thought to be due to uh, higher CO2 levels in the atmosphere at that time. We don't have as good uh, ways of estimating what the CO2 concentration was when you go that far back in time. But the evidence that has been pieced together is all consistent. Sort of million year or tens of million year fluctuations in the natural CO2 levels of the Earth. Now, scientists that have gone to the poles to extract ice cores, uh, essentially getting ice that was uh, deposited uh, perhaps several hundred thousand years ago to so maybe a million years ago, they see that carbon dioxide levels and temperature levels go up and down in unison like two roller coasters. So what does that mean? It's rare that you find such beautiful correlations in nature, I think. It's just astonishing. Al Gore showed, showed this plot in his movie. That's sort of how iconic it is. It's, uh, it's an astonishing thing. So, Professor Archer, ice core data shows that carbon dioxide levels go up and down. But the temperature of the Earth goes up and down. And the two of them go up and down like two synchronized roller coasters. So, what does that mean? if the ups and downs of carbon dioxide exactly mirror the ups and downs of temperatures on the Earth. Somehow, uh, the, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun has, has, has these wobbles in it, and that is thought to uh, pace the progress of the Ice Age cycle, when the ice sheets are going to grow or when they're going to collapse. But somehow, the CO2 concentration of the air follows along with the, the changes in the climate. So the Vice versa, what's the relationship? Uh, it's, a, it's a back and forth cause and effect. It's a feedback system. So it, to ask which one is driving which, I think is like asking if you see two figure skaters, you know, twirling each other around on the ice, uh, you know, which to try to analyze the trajectory of one without paying attention to the other would make no, no sense. On the the, uh, the deglaciation, the transition from the Ice Age climate to the, the present-day climate, the first thing that started to happen, as reported in the Antarctic ice cores, is a change in temperature in Antarctica. And then a few centuries later, 
that CO2 concentration started to rise. But then the total change in climate took much longer than a few centuries. So there's no way you could explain the climate transition from uh, the glacial world to the interglacial world without taking into account the change in CO2 concentration. So it's a, it's a feedback loop of cause and effect. It isn't a, just one or the other drives. drives. So, summarizing, if you were to go back 10,000 years, we had the Ice Age. Uh, things have been warming up in the last 10,000 years. But is it safe to say that recently, in the last several decades, there's been a spike in temperature rise, and that's due to human activity? That's more or less true. Actually, the early, the, 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 the interglacial period is called the Holocene. Uh, and the early Holocene, right at about 10,000 to six or eight thousand years ago may have been warmer than today. The, the Earth's orbit around the sun was uh, in a different, you know, slightly different configuration than it is today. So it almost seemed like there was a, 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 a peak in warming and then, and then maybe a, a little bit of gradual decline driven by the Earth's orbit over the, over the millennia. But certainly over the last thousand years or, or, or two, the temperatures of the last decade are, are uh, anomalously high. Okay, let's talk about the present. Uh, what's happening with glaciers and the North Pole and the South Pole? Uh, we see evidence of the melting of the glaciers around the Earth. Uh, that's why scientists are finding so many uh, mammoth bones and even yeah. human remains because right. the glaciers are receding. So what evidence do we have that the Earth is warm? Well, we just had the thermometers. I mean, for direct measurements of, of temperature, thermometers are hard to beat. But uh, the, um, the the mountain glaciers are almost all melting. It's difficult for a glaciology graduate student to find an advancing mountain glacier to study anymore because there are very few that uh, that, that that exist. Um, the, there's uh, warming detected in the deep ocean. Oh, we're not. I mean, sort of. I mean, fairly deep, not all the way to the, to the bottom of the ocean, but but you can see the, the warmth sort of penetrating the ocean. Uh, in the high latitudes, the Arctic is melting like crazy. It's the, the sea ice covering the Arctic Ocean is melting much faster than any of the models a few years ago predicted. Uh, the year 2007 was was a sort of a train wreck for the, the sea ice up there. It just it just plummeted. Um, actually, in the southern hemisphere, it's not so clear what's going on. In the interior of Antarctica, it actually is uh, cooling, which is not, that, that's something that the, the climate models also predict. Uh, so that's not a discrepancy. But the, there's also um, not been a meltback in the sea ice in the, in the Antarctic either. And I, I, I gather there's still some messiness about that issue, but, but maybe it's uh, caused by uh, changes in the, the circulation of the atmosphere caused by the ozone hole, which is a completely different uh, sort of phenomenon. Ozone is a, uh, a greenhouse gas, but it also absorbs ultraviolet light, and so it heats up the air that it's in the stratosphere. That's why the stratosphere gets warmer as you go higher up in the stratosphere because of ozone. So by, by wiping out the ozone in the the spring of the Antarctic every year, that changes the dynamics of the air, and maybe that's responsible for uh, a lack of global warming signature generally in, in 
the, the, the southern hemisphere. Actually, there has been uh, very intense warming on the Antarctic Peninsula, which kind of sticks out from Antarctica up into the um, slightly lower latitudes. And so you read sometimes in the newspapers about these ice shelves, these very, uh, very thick floating shelves of ice, hundreds of meters thick. You could walk on it and not know that you worked on, on solid land. Uh, that suddenly have been collapsing, places that have been covered by ice for, you know, since the last ice age, uh, suddenly are ice, are ice free. So there are signs of the climate change every place. The, the growing seasons have gotten longer. The Arbor Day Foundation has published uh, maps of climate zones of where you should plant begonias or tulips or whatever, and those have changed since 1990. Uh, there, there are all kinds of signs. It, it's more obvious in some parts of the world than others. Actually, in Chicago, there hasn't been much climate change since the 70s, but if you go up to Alaska, the climate changes have been huge. So, you know, local experience is not necessarily a good guide, but you put it together into a global average, and it's very clear. And also, you mentioned how it affects plants and also animals with the changing of the growing season, uh, but also insects, right? Uh, some people are saying that the West Nile virus, uh, which has been spreading through urban centers, is in part driven by global warming, and then future malaria could also spread. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm not a public health person. I don't really know a, a lot about the details of this, but people that I talk to are very concerned about, about the effects of climate on, uh, uh, on, on public health. Uh, I think the World Health Organization estimated last year that uh, there are 150,000 deaths a year that can be attributed to climate change. Now, obviously, that's a you know, statistical sort of question because it's not so easy to answer, but the people that I talk to say that's a very realistic. They have models of, of uh, 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 disease transmission and everything, and, and, and the climate and the insect sectors that carry the diseases are, are part of those models. Now, that being said, um, you can do a lot about malaria itself just with, you know, mosquito nets and, 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 you know, insecticides and things like that. And so I have heard the argument that instead of paying to reduce CO2 emissions, we should just pay to, for mosquito nets. I don't think the tropical diseases are the, the, the main reason why we want to worry about changing the climate. Okay, now let's talk about the thrust of your book, which talks about the future, up to 100,000 years into the future. Well, first of all, let's talk about the coming decades. Uh, what's happening with the temperature on the Earth? Projections out to 50 years, 100 years. Some people say that on a scale of decades, major metropolitan cities like New Orleans, Boston, New York, San Francisco could be partially underwater. So what are the projections for, let's say, 50 to 100 years? Well, one of the big uncertainties there is, is what we do with CO2 emissions and energy, but uh, there's, you can take as a baseline just to talk about what they call a business as usual scenario, which is a projection of how much energy people will need and, and how much fuel they will burn to get it if there were no constraint from, from changing climate. And uh, um, temperature changes uh, responding to that would put the Earth warmer than it has been uh, in, in millions of years. Uh, so, so saying what exactly the impact of that would be on you know, the, the, the corn harvest in Iowa or, or something like that is, is really 
not a very easy thing to do. With respect to sea level, the question is all uh, how quickly can the major ice sheets respond to the changes in climate. The models that have been developed uh, in the past don't respond nearly as, uh, as strongly as the observations that glaciologists actually can make in, in Greenland and, and, uh, and Antarctica about how the ice streams flowing into the ocean respond to the changes in climate. You, you can measure more ice quakes in Greenland with seismometers than you could five years ago. And the uh, ice sheets, uh, the ice streams flowing from the ice sheets into the ocean are, are accelerating. So it's really kind of anybody's guess how long it takes for sea level to change. There were uh, um, events in the past called Heinrich events when the Laurentide ice sheet, which is in, was in North America, every 8,000 years or so would then deposit on the seafloor, and there's no way for those to get there other than these ice icebergs. And so that's how we know about these events today, is by finding those layers of rocks on the bottom of the, the Atlantic. Those seemed like they took a century or a few centuries, and they seemed, some of them, to have raised sea level by many meters, which is much more than any of the ice sheet models predict for the global warming climate event. But I think the ice, a lot of people, everybody thinks, most everybody, thinks that these ice sheet models are just lacking some essential physics at this point. Well, some people say that the real problem with sea level rise is simply the thermal expansion of ocean water with the rising temperature of the Earth. And since the Earth is rising in temperature, the oceans are going to expand no matter what happens to the North Pole or the South Pole. Well, that's absolutely true, and that's part of the, uh, the forecast for sea level rise by the year 2100, which is about a half a meter or so. Uh, something like half of that sea level rise is caused by exactly this effect, the expansion of the seawater. It's like the mercury of the thermometer fills up more of the thermometer when the temperature goes up. That's a process that will keep going for uh, centuries. So the forecast for the year 2100 is not sort of the end of the line. That's sort of just the beginning for the thermal expansion of seawater. The other half of the sea level rise that's, that's actually in the... IPCC forecast for the year 2100 is uh, melting of, of smaller mountain glaciers like in the Andes and the Alps. And actually, a lot of them, a lot of the sea level rise today can be attributed to mountain glaciers in the state of Alaska. Uh, it just happens to be a place where there's lots of ice frozen on mountains and where the climate changes are very intense. But it's some astonishingly large fraction of sea level rise comes from Alaska. Okay so, the curiosity. okay, so what does that mean for the average person who has to make decisions, enormous decisions, uh, in the next few years about fossil fuel consumption, about investment in solar energy, and so on and so forth? What changes in their lifestyle uh, should we expect in the coming decades? Well, uh, you know, lifestyles could change because we adapt to new energy technologies. Uh, one of the, the, most of the CO2 emissions that can be avoided in the next few decades actually come from improvement in efficiency.
unfortunately, that's it for exploration. Once again, we had two special guests today. The first special guest was Dr. Peter Ward, author of the book, Flooded Earth. And the second guest was Dr. David Archer, author of the book, The Long Haul. And this is Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. And if you want to get a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, for a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Good day. That's just a little something I listened to. Now, I'm going to tell you what I've been thinking about in relation to this, what he was just talking about. I've been thinking about a fiction. Like, some kind of origin fiction or whatever. Uh, like, what are you talking, what am I talking about here? You got your uh, climate change and all that. And I'd like to figure out, uh, look up and see why the, why were the dinosaurs so big? Like what created, what made, what, what created that phenomenon? Because, let me think here for a second, where am I? I, I came up there, I did that. I'm going straight through there. So I got to get careful about What phenomenon created? Alright, yeah, she's out of town. Okay, what what phenomenon created the gigantism uh, that is a dinosaur, you know what I mean? Because um, what if that happened to people? Like, what if like the population decreased a little bit a lot for like a variety of reasons uh, but if people like just swole up just got big and perhaps on some cycle that we can't even comprehend like whatever that uh I don't know, I just started thinking that's why we got crowns on our head because it's really like the rings from, I don't know, because I started thinking about uh, a time when there might have been people of that size in the same space as regular, you know, us people. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, something I've been thinking about on the dinosaurs. Some of that science and stuff is playing with that. But I'm still really thinking about this idea of uh, a political future science fiction kind of thing where Trump is the reason why the left so called uh, just gets mad control of things um, and we go into like a uh, I don't know, like a, like when Kennedy launched the thing on the moon or we're going to land on the moon in 10 years, like everybody got behind it or whatever. If 
if the left got into that and FDR had like work programs, if the left kind of somehow synergized that kind of activity and created like my, what I was talking about was like some massive <laughs> terraforming of the United States where you flood out like giant watches and you end up with uh, oh what is it what was I thinking about I was thinking about getting rid of Tulsa and that was what that would afford me an opportunity to do a look back on the history of the Tulsa race riots and um, one two Oh, they're back again. You say so, buddy. I'm gonna throw that paper. Uh, but that give you a, a chance to look at their their history before you, or you know, like as a as a side note. But um, a flooding of the in the Midwest, creating like this gigantic reservoir where because of all the massive building that you're doing in the in the population centers, you know, in the big cities like Chicago and uh, Kansas City, for my purposes, because if you're gonna flood out half the world, you might as well make your hometown become, you know, the new, <laughs> the new Midwest capital or whatever. But anyway, to be able to, uh, one. All right, so that finishes all of that. All of that. I already did. No, I didn't. I just did Aberdeen because I came out of there. So I still got that little loop. So I might as well do that. Then I can do that and I'm done. Okay. All right. Uh, so go back to Verona. So I did one number. Circle. Paris. I did. All of that. Tomahawk Circle, I got her. And then I did not do these and those. And I just jumped straight into Aberdeen. So if I do these, I'm back into good. Okay. All right. Sorry, what was I at? I was talking about the thing we did. The, the uh, attempt to, or the idea of the story is like basically like the science of terraforming and trying to create like so basically so that puts me in the space of playing with the politics of you know a world in which you don't have um alright I did that and I'm going backwards yeah. um yeah a world in which you don't have or, you know, where you have a different shape of things. Because, like, you'd be getting rid of, say, part of the breadbasket doing what I'm talking about because if you flood out. Uh, hold on, man. This wind's blowing and blew a daggone paper into a bunch of trees. Uh-oh. 
But anyway, where was I talking about? The whole, the, you get to a spot where, what's it called? The, okay, there it is. You get to a spot where you're looking at the politics of what would happen if you basically you got rid of some of the bread either not really so much as get rid of it but like really increase like Kansas would become like this powerhouse right of a state if that lake encompassed Wichita making it like an port to get stuff across to uh, what would that be like Louisiana, Atlanta and all that kind of stuff uh, yes I threw that when I was down there okay alright I'm changing routes again um Yeah, and you could even see a Coke alliance with the left, or not even an alliance so much as, you know, the opportunistic thing to do. If they're getting ready to, if they're going to flood and make this thing, then they would become this giant, Wichita would be a perfect port for their business. That's two. Where's this one at? Crossroad on the terrace. That guy started back. Sorry, I'm in the area where I got a bunch of different papers and the route is kind of crazy right here. But anyway. Uh, huh. Okay, I'm thinking, thinking this through again. Yeah, so basically, yeah, the, the Coke kind of politic, politics machine would ultimately kind of play into it. I had to go back and look at something like uh, Deadwood and see how they really dealt with that kind of thing where you're changing, <laughs> getting, <laughs> yeah. Because hmm. the idea or the thing would be what vehicle puts you in that. I was thinking about like a crime drama that's everything, right? But I don't know. Alright, uh, Verona Terrace. Yep, I knew there was something going to happen. USA starting back.
So I'm gonna focus on that. And I may send this route, this message.